If you were not here last week, uh, during the worship time, as I was preparing to come and speak with you, I had this strong, strong impression, this one word just was resounding in my mind. It was the word sacrifice. It happened in no other service except this service last week. And uh, for those of you who are here, I, I got up and I said something to the effect that, you know, I think God is calling somebody who's wrestling with something of a sacrifice in their life to trust him and go ahead with this and not, uh, not worry about it. And then I asked for some people, if, even if it was just one person, if God had been speaking to that person, if they would come and they would share with me at the break so that I could get some confirmation and we could share this with the congregation. And three or four people came up and said, well, I, you know, I, I was going through this thing and that thing and the other thing. And nothing that was shared seemed to fit. And so at, as we moved on with the service, I shared that. And I said, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure that the one who was supposed to share shared. And uh, Tuesday... Wayne Blanchard called me. Um, Wayne's an under-shepherd in one of our mini churches. And he called me and he said, you know, there's a couple in our church that you, you need to call and talk to about a pretty severe issue in their life. And it might have something to do with this sacrifice issue. So I said, who are they? And he told me their names, gave me their phone number, and I called them up. And I knew who they were, and Jim and Carol Frazier, their, their name, they live in El Segundo, and apparently they're renowned in El Segundo. They have a house that's falling into an oil sump. It's breaking up. And uh, they've been battling this thing for two years plus, and they've sued the oil companies and the city and the broker that sold them a house and the previous owners of the house. I mean, they're embroiled in all these complex lawsuits. And in fact, they shared their testimony last night about this whole thing and how frustrating it's been, uh, just exhausting, obviously. Uh, every penny they have, they've sunk into this house and it's going into this hole in the ground. And they can't get any satisfaction. They, for the longest time, they couldn't find any, any lawyers who would take the uh, case. And finally they did. And so it's been a very, very frustrating experience. And so they're sitting in the congregation last Saturday at this service. And they heard me say the word sacrifice, you know. And he looked at her, she looked at him. And they said, no, nah, no, not us, not us. <laughs> I mean, just categorically rejected it. And then, the, you know, then, then Sunday came and Monday and, and they're back and forth with Wayne, calling Wayne and talking to him and praying with him. And uh, I don't know how many times, Wayne, how many times were you guys back and forth on the phone those couple days? Twice or three times a day. Two to three times a day, talking, praying, you know. Finally, uh, they came to the conclusion that God was speaking to them about letting go of it. And in the space of a couple of days, and, and after I'd talked to them, they had been talking about this whole issue of sacrifice. They'd been talking about just Jim and Carol, about um, Abraham laying Isaac on the altar, trusting God, you know. And so I call him, and I'm talking to him, and I said, well, you, see, you know, Abraham laid Isaac on the altar. <laughs> and you stone silence on the other end of the phone. He says, you're not going to believe this. Three minutes ago, we said that same thing. And I said, oh, my. I said, well, I'm not telling you to do this. You've got to know that this is from God if you back off of this thing. And they, they said, we understand that. They said, well, we can't get this thing out of our head. And he said that uh, a couple of days, he's driving, and, uh, and, and it's like God's in the car with him. He, he, could, he could sense the very presence of God comforting him and urging him to trust him. They made the decision to rescind all their lawsuits. They just backed right away. I mean, they lose it everything. 
They have no recourse. They're just trusting God with this house. As soon as they made the decision, they got, he runs a business out of his home apparently, he got two very large orders on the phone, left on his answering machine, and the people who'd sent him these orders sent him the money for the orders. He said, this does not happen. <laughs> and uh, he's written a long letter to the Daily Breeze, the LA Times, and the, I guess the paper in El Segundo, just saying, hey, we're, we're backed away. We're not gonna sue anybody. We're gonna trust God. And we just ask for anybody in the city of El Segundo who can help out, come and help us dig our house out of this oil pit. That is a powerful testimony. And it's a big sacrifice. Because all their money is invested in this house. You know, the American dream. And just to give it up. And, and it could go down in that hole. Irretrievable. So uh, keep Jim and Carol Frazier in your prayers. <laughs> For they are taking a huge step in terms of sacrifice. And then, coming in tonight, somebody else shared with me that God had spoken to him. So I want to have, uh, have you hear this quick testimony from uh, Donna Carrico. Just go ahead and speak out. My uh, mic will pick you up. Oh, great. Um, well, I was kind of struggling on the way uh, to church last week. In fact, even earlier in the day, kind of the thought came by about um, thinking in terms of writing our tithe check. And I have just was struggling with it because I knew we had um, a very sizable amount of uh, taxes that had quarterly uh, tax deposits that had to be made. Uh, for this past Friday, and I was just kind of really struggling and thinking, well, maybe I just better not even write a check and, you know, hold this back, and um, and then you mean when, skip skip your tithe. Yeah, just pass on. Just it, pass you know? on the tithe. <laughs> Make it up later, you know. And you know, there's a twenty percent surcharge on that when you don't when you don't pay it. Yeah, boy, you can get in a big hole. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, um, so anyway, I was, you know, battling with it, and then when Zach spoke, it was like, all right, all right, all right, I'll, you know, I mean, I'm not at all suggesting this was a sacrifice, um, but, uh, you know, I just um, went ahead and wrote the check, and um, God was faithful, and we did um, get all the money for the tax deposit as of yesterday, so it was, uh, and believe me, it was no small amount, and it was uh, definitely a miracle. So, All right. He is faithful. He is faithful if we're faithful, right? Amen. All right. Well, you have, you have in your bulletins the notes, similar, same from note last week. And I covered the first four points last week. I'm not going to cover the second four this week. I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to finish this hopefully next week. Okay? But I want you to, I want you to hear from somebody... Um, just by way of testimony, I've invited her to come and share. I think she has some significant things to say, encouraging things, challenging things, things that are just going to bless our life. But before she does, I want to preface her remarks by asking you once again to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to introduce Mary to you in just a few moments, but I want to contextualize her remarks in these passages. Matthew chapter 16, we looked at last week, verse 24, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And we're talking about denying ourselves, And we said last week that Unless we're willing to do that, then growth in grace is impossible. We've got to be willing to lay ourself aside. We've got to be willing to deny ourselves, as opposed to exalting ourselves, seeking out after self-worth, self-esteem, self-love, and on and on and on it goes. But rather, deny ourselves. For it is a sinful nature, 
Jesus is not about the business of redeeming the flesh. That's not what he's about. The Holy Spirit is not redeeming the flesh. The flesh must die. We are born again. We're new creatures spiritually. And this human nature, this fleshy nature we still live in, we still are, la- are, are saddled with, if you will, is also going to pass off the scene. This can't, flesh and blood cannot inherit eternal life. So we're going to get a brand new human nature, if you will, but a glorified human nature. And so all of the stuff that goes with this, we've got to continue to die to and deny ourselves. And if we're seeking in this life to preserve, to maintain, to hold on, to redeem this, the flesh, we're, we're missing it. We're just absolutely missing it. And along with that, if you turn over to Romans chapter 12, the first two verses, Paul writes much the same thing with a little different perspective. He says, in effect, in verse 1, that if we correctly uh, understand and are benefiting by God's grace, in other words, his mercy, God has been merciful to us, has he not? Incredibly merciful. And it's only when we understand the riches of his mercy that he has saved us because he is rich in mercy. He hasn't saved us because of anything we've done. He, doesn't, he hasn't saved us because we're worth saving. He hasn't saved us because we're so cool that he needs us. He doesn't need us. We're not cool. We're far from it. The only, the only basis upon which we can look to his salvation is because he is rich in mercy. And so keeping in view his mercy then, and if his mercy has truly touched our hearts, our only response then is to live our lives how? Offer our bodies as what? Living what? Sacrifices. Now we may not start out that way. We may not really fully understand that, but the The whole point is, for us as Christians, the more we apprehend God's grace and mercy to us in our life, the more then we must. Our only response is to be a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Somebody said a long time ago, and I was was always fond of this, the only problem with a living sacrifice is when you get it on the altar, it's not long before it wants to wiggle off. You know, we make these great commitments. Yes, Lord, oh, I'm there. I'm with you, Lord. Okay, yes. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, well, I don't know, Lord. Uh, Maybe I made a little rash decision, you see. And so he says that we should be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. And that is, in fact, how we worship God. We worship him with our life. Everything that we do, everything that we are, in every life arena, how we live our life is... Uh, worship. And God is worshiped through all of those avenues and all of our attitudes and so forth. And so this idea of sacrifice, the Christian life uh, is not a life that we live at our convenience. It's a life that we live at our inconvenience. God is glorified when we're stretched. God is glorified when we cannot do what we think we can do. God is glorified when it's him who's working in us and through us. But it requires a substantial sacrifice on our part. Stretch me. And most of us, and I confess, I'm one who, who lives sometimes a little nervously about being stretched, you know, about being a living sacrifice. What's going to come next? You know, God, what are you going to bless my life with in order to uh, ensure the fact that I, my life is a living sacrifice? But again, I think that uh, we don't have to fear God and we don't have to fear what he's doing in our life. I think we can just know that he knows exactly, exactly what he wants from us and what he wants to do in us and through us. And we can trust him. We can rest in him. Sometimes we aggravate the whole process and create for ourselves unnecessary grief because we're all anxious. Oh, God, what are you going to make me suffer because we automatically um, equate 
sacrifice and suffer. Now, and some, there's some measure of truth in that. But for, for many of us, when we surrendered to the Lord and surrendered to his process, sacrifice is something that really brings us fulfillment and, and true joy. Therein, what Jesus says, if you're, if you're willing to lose your life for me, you'll find it. You'll find fulfillment. You'll find the, re, the real reason for living your life. God has made us for him. Our main business is his business, not our business. It's his business. And we come to the knowledge of his business. We come into contact through various circuitous kinds of routes. But God is amazing in how he redeems our foolishness and he brings us right to his place. And Mary is a wonderful example of that she'll share with you. She's been part of our church since the very inception of Hope Chapel. She's, she goes back to the very first days of Hope Chapel. And her mom uh, made the transition from the original Manhattan Beach Four Square Church to, to Hope Chapel when Ralph founded it. And they've been part of this process for years. Mary is most recently, the past six, seven years, been in China and Russia, uh, most recently Russia, and she's back with us, and I want you to welcome her, Mary Dupre. It's great to be here. It's good to be home. And... I was listening to Zach and I thought, I don't want to share. I want to sit here and listen. It's been a long time. You people are so blessed. You get meat here. You're being fed meat. And I think of the people that I've been living with who can't even acknowledge the existence of God. And here you are talking about living sacrifice. I mean, you're, you're so fortunate to live in America and know Jesus. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next few weeks, next few months when I'm sitting there and listening again. Uh, you don't know what you have till you miss it. And I've missed sitting here and listening and getting this meat, this spiritual meat. I want to uh, tell you that everything that Zach is telling you about living sacrifice is true. And... He's painted a picture that is challenging and a, a little scary, but I want to tell you a little bit about how wonderful it is when you give up to the Lord the dearest things to you, and you have to search your heart and find out what's the dearest thing to me. Is it my car, my house, my wife, my husband, my children, my career? my education, what's the thing, a TV show? <laughs> what's the, the thing you love the most? Can you give it up? And last night when, and tonight when Zach talked about Abraham, what was the dearest thing to him? I said, a son, only son, old age son. No replacement, maybe no replacement. And God wanted that, that hurts. But you know, when you give the dearest thing up, there are such wonderful surprises in your life, such miracles that you can't even compare the cost to what you receive. And I'm going to backtrack and tell you a little bit about my, it's, it's a testimony. I'm not a public speaker. I'm just going to tell you a testimony. Um, when I came from New York City to California. We joined Hope Chapel. It was a small group, 20 people. Got married and then had a son and then a daughter. And then when my daughter was four, my son was seven, um, my husband went back to hard drugs. He had been in hard drugs, but he was a born-again Christian, and he went back to hard drugs. And for two years, we struggled with it, and it was an impossible situation. It was cocaine and heroin together, and you know what that does to a person. And our life was a nightmare. And finally, divorce came. And it was a difficult divorce. 
And he had been a born-again Christian. In fact, if you, let, if you read the book, Let Go of the Ring, Ralph Moore's book, there's a story in there where three people came to this building when they were still bidding for it. And they lost the first bid. And then they came back one night, three people, Ralph, Dick Whitted, and my ex-husband. And they ran around this building in the parking lot praying for the walls, claiming it for Jesus. And the cops came and almost arrested them because they looked kind of crazy. My ex-husband was a real strong believer, but he weakened. And it was a terrible divorce. And I found myself not wanting to see him anymore. I didn't want the kids to see him. Uh, I felt I had to get away. And I got away. I went to Arroyo Grande to teach there, teach high school there, lived in Los Osos, California. That didn't work out, came back. Four years went by from, since that divorce. And it was a bad situation. He would break into the house. He, he couldn't accept the fact that he had lost this wonderful thing. We had it all, you know, the house, the car, the kids, everything. So I, I needed to get away. And I was so wrapped up in my problems, I couldn't see beyond my nose. And I, I know most people have been in situations like that. It's all relative, but we get caught up in terrible problems and we can't see beyond our noses. But you know, the Lord uses those things. And usually in hindsight, we say, you know, the Lord was there all the time, wasn't he? He was leading me in hindsight. But when we're in the middle of it, we don't see it. And all I knew is I wanted to get away from my ex-husband. And I thought, where could I go? What's the furthest place I could go? China. <laughs> and I was teaching with LA Unified, and they passed a flyer around saying they were recruiting teachers for China and Japan. And I wrote to the FEB, the Foreign Experts Bureau in Beijing, and I got turned down. A few months later, I heard about a Christian group in San Dimas recruiting, applied through them. They told me, no, you're a single mother, you spell trouble. So we can't even accept your application. And I felt like I had to leave, tried one more time through an organization in Oklahoma. And they said, well, let's try. What can we lose? They'll just say no. So we tried and they accepted me. And they sent me and the children to this town in northwest China. And this town, a small town by Chinese standards, two million people, right by the Yellow River, Huanghe. And this town hadn't seen foreign children since liberation. Liberation was in 1949 when Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, took over. And before that, you know, there had been missionaries there and foreigners, British people, and the China Inland Mission had reached there. But since liberation, no, 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 no foreign children. They had had, uh, China had opened in 1980, and since 1980, they had had some foreign teachers. When we arrived, we were still a curiosity, and I remember it was really difficult for my children. They were ages seven and 10, and people would follow us in the street, and they would touch my kids and touch their heads and, you know, little curious things. Oh, they come in small sizes, too, these foreigners. <laughs> and I put my kids in school because I had, they had to do something while I was teaching. I couldn't leave them in the house all day. You know, you, you don't think of these things when you're on your way. And I remember one day, uh, my daughter came into the classroom. She threw the door open, slammed it against the wall. She screamed in front of this class. And there's 60 people in this class. Mom, I hate this place. I want to go home. I hate these people. And the whole class understood because this is an English class and they spoke English. <laughs> and I excused myself with the class and I said, I have to go see what happened in school with my daughter. Walked over with my daughter. And when I turned around, all 60 people were walking behind us. And these are, you know, and I'm just giving, I'm giving you examples of negative things that happen that the Lord turns into positive things. You know why? Because you are righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you're righteous, the Bible says your steps are directed of the Lord. And you can't doubt that. Even when you're right in the middle of the terrible situation, remember, my steps are directed of the Lord. And this is a terrible situation, but my steps are directed of the Lord. It's a promise and he keeps his promises. When the Chinese people saw how difficult it was for the kids and I to adjust to their culture, it became a bonding thing between us. They, we became better friends. The Chinese people 
during that time didn't open up too much to foreigners. They didn't trust us. They called us foreign devils. An American was, a, was an American devil. Uh, they, were, they have been taught not to trust foreigners. You know, countries have done terrible, foreign countries have done terrible things to China, you know, if you know some Chinese history. And we were there, I was there teaching English, but I was a foreigner, not to be trusted. I was probably a spy. But when they saw that we were having such a tough time, they trusted us more. So our seeming defeat, our problems, worked out for something positive. And if you look back in your life, after you knew the Lord, every time, I'm sure you'll discover that every time you have a problem, the Lord uses that to not only increase your faith, but to bless the people around you and to bring glory to his name. So don't be afraid of being, like Zach said, stretched. It's great. You know, I don't feel like I gave anything up to serve the Lord. My life is so exciting. I feel like I'm privileged to give everything for the Lord. I feel like I'm, I'm privileged to be stretched because my life now is so exciting. Um, we were there in China for two years. It was a difficult two years, especially at the beginning. Uh, in 1985, I came back for a vacation, then returned to China. And during that time, Zach had me share here at uh, with the church, and I remember, I think I told, I don't know if anybody was here then, that we had electricity in our water. You remember that? <laughs> and for six months, we didn't know. I remember washing my hands, and the water would sting, and I thought it's chemicals in the water because pollution is a big problem there. And one day, I was washing my daughter's jacket in the tub, and I was swinging it around, and sparks came out of the faucet. And I said, oh, it's not chemicals. <laughs> and we called the university officials and they came over and they apologized and they said the problem had been there the year before, but they thought when those, when those foreigners left, the problem would leave. And, you know, I didn't sue like they tried to sue. I, I didn't know this had happened. They keep a lot of secrets from you. But the Lord's protecting hand was there with us. The righteous are directed of the Lord and you have the protection of the Lord. You don't have to be afraid to make major decisions if you're being directed of the Lord. After two years there, I was feeling a little discouraged because, you know, you're taught to, in, in the West, you're taught when you witness, you win souls for the Lord. You have conversions, right? How many people did you lead to the Lord last week? Oh, one, two. But in China, you can't witness openly. When you start teaching in China, they call you into the office and they say, you do not speak about religion or politics. So I couldn't witness openly. And every morning I'd pray, Lord, provide the opportunity. These people need to know about you. I mean, the students in my class, some of them had never heard about Jesus. They didn't know Moses, the Ten Commandments. Things that are basic to faith were, were not part of their lives. And I knew that they, you know, for them, death is terminal. This is it. This is the life we have now. And after death, there's nothing. And their life is not so good. This is it. So I, I knew there was a need, a need for hope, a need to know something greater than this ideology that doesn't work, communism. And I remember in class sometimes, things would happen that I knew were the Lord, opening the opportunity to speak about him. And I remember once we were doing questions from the young game. And the question was, what do poor people need most? And there were responses, and the responses were, oh, they need help from the government, they need education, etc." And a chemistry teacher from the back, I remember Mr. Wang, he said, poor people need God. And that opened up the conversation. What is God? Oh, that's something from the West. And I was able to, you know, speak about the Lord. And mostly I spoke about my own experience because you can't argue with people that are super educated. You know, you don't rationalize his existence with them. And I remember also, um, they were very curious about American culture. Before China was open, the only thing they knew about China was what the government fed them through the media. And what did they see about America? Homeless people, racial riots, uh, poverty, Appalachia. So they were very curious about America. They thought most people in America were very, very corrupt. My kids are different colors. My daughter's fair and my son's very dark. And they thought they had different fathers because I probably slept around because I was an American. 
uh, they have very negative ideas about American people. So they would ask me a lot of questions about American culture. And of course the question would come up, what about, is it true in America people go to church all the time? Well, and that was an opportunity to speak about the Lord. But I never led anybody to the Lord. And I was very discouraged because two years and not one star in my crown. And when I came in 1985 and I spoke here, there was a girl in the audience, Carrie Whittet, and her parents, the Whittets, had been co-pastors in this church years before, and they were pastoring a church in Bozeman, Montana. After the service, she called her parents, and her parents got very excited about China. When I left China in 1986, the people who replaced me were the Whittets, the pastors, and they went as teachers, as English teachers. Nobody knew they were pastors. But they reaped the harvest. And they, they, when, when Ida came back and she told me so-and-so accepted the Lord and so-and-so accepted the Lord, I knew all these people. And I knew that the seed had been planted. And I didn't see the fruit. But you know, it's not my work. It's the Lord's work. And the Lord will sow and the Lord will water and the Lord will bring the harvest. And all you have to do is be a willing instrument. Just do your part. Just your part. And the Lord will, it's his work. And I feel humble that he would use me. Why me? I'm not, I mean, I, I'm Spanish, English speaking. I'm a bilingual teacher. What am I doing in China? I'm the completely wrong person for China. But the Lord wants the glory. So it's his work. And all he wants is willing hands, willing hearts. In 1986, we left China. And I, I like to travel and don't be afraid if you have certain likes and dislikes that this is something you have to put aside all the time. Sometimes the Lord uses your skills, your talents, your, your desires. And I like to travel. And I told my kids, we're going to go home by the Trans-Siberian Express. Uh, I want to see Russia. And my daughter didn't want to go. She was afraid of Russia, you know, missiles, and they hate the Americans. My son didn't care. We took the Trans-Siberian. We got to a town, oh, every four hours the train stopped, five minutes, we went outside the train, exercised a little bit, got, got back on the train. It was a seven-day trip to Moscow. And in Sverdlovsk, a town by the Ural Mountains, uh, there was a 15-minute stop, 15 minutes. She said, oh, 15 minutes, I was able, oh, I can buy something, I can buy some food, I can go to the station and get some souvenirs, something. So I told my kids, stay by the train. I'm just going to go into the station, across the tracks, and buy some things. I kept looking at my watch, bought a few things, some bread. It was morning. I was in a house coat, because you sleep on the train. The train is your home. And I rushed back, and the train was gone. And no kids. And I was scared, because I knew Sverdlovsk was a closed town. And I knew Sverdlovsk had military weapons factory around the, the, the city, and it had been a closed town, you know, for 70 years. And I prayed. <laughs> I was so scared, and I prayed, Lord, I really blew it this time. And you know how when you blow it and you know it's your fault? And I looked for a guard, and I spoke to him, and we didn't understand each other. I didn't speak any Russian. He had never seen a foreigner before. Uh, he thought I was Russian until he spoke to me and figured I wasn't Russian. And he, he was very angry. He signaled to me. I followed him. It's a long story, but I'll tell you, I was interrogated. Uh, they put me under a tree on a, a chair and surrounded me, and I thought it was the firing squad. I had no passport, no ID. Uh, I knew they thought I was a spy. And finally, about seven hours later, a man came with a lot of stars on his shoulder, and he spoke English. And he spoke seven languages, actually. And he called me to his office, he took me to his office, and we sat there, and he looked at me really seriously. You know, Russians have very serious faces. You see them in the, in the, in, on television, and in newspapers, and they always look angry and gruff. Well, if you lived in Russia, you would look the same way. If you have to go shopping in Russia, you'd look the same way. And this man sat there, and he looked at me real seriously, and he said, do you have any Elvis Presley music? <laughs> and then I knew they were harmless. And the fear left me. You know, something so silly. And 
I was able to tell him, I'm just really anxious about my kids. My kids are on the train. Anyway, the Lord used that experience to take away my fear about Russia, to take away my children's fear about Russia. I didn't know in the future I was going to Russia, but I fell in love with the country. I loved it. I found these people, so these gruff-looking people were wonderful people. That story ends one, you know, well, of course. I, I met my children in Moscow two days later. A wonderful woman on the train from Finland took care of them. She sat up with them in their compartment all night. My daughter cried for two days. But we finally met in Moscow and went on to East Berlin and then West Berlin and then on home. But see, the Lord took something negative, a poor decision maybe on my part, and something positive happened from it because a righteous man's steps are directed of the Lord. We came back to Hermosa Beach. I have a house here on First and Prospect. Went right back to our old lives. You know, I went back to teach with LA Unified. My son uh, went back to high school. My daughter went back to Hermosa Valley School. We were back in our routines. And I noticed my kids were falling right into the trap of the gimmies. You know, that disease, the gimmies, give me this, give me that, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And my son had a computer, my daughter needed a computer, my son needed another wetsuit, he needed two surfboards, uh, he went through three cars. Um, and I, I didn't want these values for my children. I don't want these values of super materialism. I, I know there's something better than that. And I'll tell you, Southern California is a dangerous place for that. You fall right into it, the good life. The good life, the convenience. God forbid I should be on line a half hour. Huh, go shopping in Russia. You'll know about lines. But we're so used to convenience here. You know, I see it driving now. Everybody's so impatient. Get out of my way. You know, this is my life, my turn. I have a right to be this way. And I have, we're so spoiled. So when a second invitation came from China in 1990, I said, I'm ready to go. I want to go back to China. My daughter wants to go. Yes, mom, let's go. My son said, and he was now a senior at Redondo High, I don't want to go. I'm happy here. But you know when we pray, we want it today, this afternoon. <laughs> well, he, his time is different. And you know what they say, he never answers when you want him, but he answers just in time. And I prayed and we waited. We waited months, months. And one day my son came home late, called, Mom, can I go upstairs to talk to you? That was unusual. He never went to my bedroom. Came upstairs. He's 16 now. Sits on my bed. Says, Mom, I think we should go to China. <laughs> oh, you decided to go to China? Oh. And inside, oh, hallelujah, I'm so glad, I'm so glad. You know, I was so happy. The Lord really changes. And I didn't want to tell him that God had manipulated him. He was 16. You don't want to tell him God's manipulating you. <laughs> but I said, okay, I'll, I'll send a fax. You know, I'll send a fax to China. So I sent a fax and I said, I, I, please send the uh, official invitation for the visa. And we waited for the invitation. This was August. The invitation, the first invitation had come in May, April or May. This was August. We were waiting for the official invitation for the visa. No invitation. September came. No invitation. No official invitation. Uh, second week of September, school started. No invitation. What should the kids do? Go to school? We decided, okay, put the kids in school. And John went to Redondo. My daughter went to school. And the second week of school of September, first week of school, second week of September went by. My son came home on a Friday and he said, Mom, I changed my mind. I'm not going to China. I'm having a good time. I'm in band. It's football season. I'm not leaving this. The good life. I, I was in a dilemma. We spoke seriously. I said, John, you made a decision. Based on your decision, I faxed these people in China. Let's give them one more week. If they don't send the invitation by the end of this third week in September, we don't go to China, and I will keep my word. But if they send it by Friday, we go, and you have to keep your word. He agreed because he was so sure the invitation wouldn't come. He figured it was so late that we're going to send it. You know, and he, he knows bureaucracy in China. Things in China take forever because they have 10,000 meetings to make one decision. So he figured it was going to come maybe in October. I sweat that week. I prayed, Lord, if it's your will. I didn't want to set my heart on going because I was afraid of this a disappointment. But Friday, 11 p.m., the fax came. 
official invitation. Friday, 11 p.m. I mean, it was like skin, you know, by the skin of my teeth. I made it by the skin of my teeth. And I showed it to my son, and he was very disappointed. And he, I remember I met him by the track at Redondo High, and I showed him the invitation. He went, and that was his body language. You know, he didn't say anything, but it was just like, oh. I spoke to John. He's still in China. I spoke to him last week from Hawaii. I was in Hawaii at Ralph's church. You wouldn't think this was the same kid. He doesn't want to come home. He loves it. He says, Mom, why don't you just go back to Russia? I'll stay in China. I like it here. He's got great friends. His Chinese is really good. He sings in Chinese on television now. He does, you know, the karaoke's? He does uh, karaoke in, in Chinese, introduces all the singers, and he's so at home there. You know, he's, I have to make him come home because he's turning Chinese now. <laughs> and this was a kid who said no, he didn't want to go. And the Lord has used him. I mean, he's 19 now, but he's, you know, he's a teenager. And when I spoke to him, I said, what do you need? What do you want me to send? Heavy metal. No, 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 no. I don't want to send you heavy metal. But this is the kid that has also brought kids to the Lord. In China, the church cannot... Uh, proselytize or evangelize kids under 18. In fact, they're not supposed to give out any literature. You, can't, you cannot invite people to church that are under 18. But my son invited his friends to church, and even Muslim kids have accepted the Lord. So I know the Lord is using him. And these kids that I think are mine are not mine. They belong to the Lord, and the Lord has a plan for them, and the Lord is using them. And their steps are being directed of the Lord because they're righteous through Jesus' blood. We were in China uh, these second two years, and some wonderful things happened. We were, I, I was placed in the Chinese building. I was teaching for the Academy of Sciences and teaching English. And we were placed in the Chinese building, which is unusual. Most foreign teachers are placed in the Zhuangjialo. Zhuangjialo is a foreigner's compound. They keep all the foreigners together, British, Australian, Canadian, Japanese, all together. So they kind of keep track of who's there and who's not. And they have better services there. You have better water, but, you know, you, the water doesn't go for a week. You have better services. But they put me in a Chinese building, and I wasn't too happy because a Chinese building is not as nice as a foreigner's building. But the Lord had a purpose. And the spring of 1990, right across the hall from us, two Russians moved in. Russians in the Chinese building. And the summer before, I had been to Tibet, and I loved Tibet. I, it was like a little vacation for three weeks, and I, and I felt the Lord's calling me to Tibet. Just like when I went to Hawaii, and I said, the Lord's calling going to call me to Hawaii. <laughs> so beautiful. I said, the Lord's calling me to Tibet. I love Tibet. I love the Tibetan people. And I wrote to the university in Tibet. And uh, a friend of mine who knew the president of the university, because the only way you get things done in China is by who you know, not what you know. He wrote to the president of the university, but you know, I got a brick wall. Here was this tremendous desire in my heart to serve the Lord in Tibet, and I got a brick wall. No response, not even a no, just no response from anybody. And I was sharing this one day with the Russian, the two Russian physicists who were there, and they said, well, Mary, why don't you just come to Russia to teach? And I went, hmm, Russia. Never thought of it. But I had a brick wall in front of me, and this was an opening. Why not? My son wanted me to leave. He said, Mom, go to Russia. Go, 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 go. I'll stay in China. <laughs> he wanted his independence. He was 18. He, was, he wanted to try his wings. He was encouraging me to, to leave. And my daughter, who's 16, who's very down to earth, my daughter who keeps me humble. You know, Mom, you're senile. Mom, you walk like a retard. My daughter, who's very honest, told me, Mom, this must be of the Lord. Because how did we get two Russians in the Chinese building? And you know, she made sense. So we, got, we took the job in Russia, and I wrote to Zach about the trip to Russia and what a trauma it was. You don't just buy train tickets to leave. <laughs> you have to know somebody at the train station, and you have to be in good terms with this person. Maybe it's somebody's cousin or brother-in-law. And even this person that you know through a back door, you have to maybe bribe to get the tickets. It's not, you don't, you don't just travel. You have to, this is a big engineering problem to travel in China and in Russia too. We couldn't get tickets. You have to buy tickets three months in advance. I couldn't buy the tickets because I didn't have my visa for Russia. I couldn't get my visa because I didn't have my invitation yet. It was a tremendous dilemma. 
I, I won't go into the details, but I finally got the invitation, the visa, and we had the tickets. Finally. This is late August. I'm supposed to start teaching in this institute in Russia in September. We go to the train station. The train station resembled, um, you know, in England, after a football game, when the team's lost, you know what it's like? Have you seen those pictures in the newspaper? Bedlam, chaos, everybody pushing, shoving, screaming. That, that was the line to get on the train. It was not a line. It was, uh, it was complete dis- disorder. We were carrying so many packages. We had a TV, a VCR, 60 videos, books, paraphernalia for teaching. And since the, border, since the coup in Russia, the border was open between Russia and China, well, a lot of Chinese people are taking advantage of that to make some money. Ha! We found somebody more poor than we are. And they're taking coats, down jackets into, China, into Russia to sell. They sell them across Siberia. Every time we stop, they sell coats. They sell them in Moscow, whatever's left over. So you have these people carrying these humongous bags to get on the train. And the Chinese government, seeing an opportunity for them to make money, are charging overweight on the train. Usually overweight's on a plane. Now they charge overweight on the train. And I knew I was going to get it. They told us, we got some information. We didn't know how accurate it was, but it was... Uh, 10 UN per overweight kilogram. And I had about 300 kilograms overweight. I had a lot of stuff. After two years in China, carrying a lot of stuff and a lot of gifts. The Chinese people are so generous and they just give you gifts and gifts and gifts and, and breakable things and you have to carry them carefully. And we finally got to the front of the line where the Chinese guards were and they weren't very friendly. I mean, you know what that crowd was like. And they knew all these people were business people trying to make money. They weren't very friendly. They were trying to see how much money they were going to make from you. Finally got up there, and they threw my things on this big scale, and I knew we were going to pay through the nose. And we didn't have the money. Um, and I spoke to them, and my, I said to my daughter, please speak to them in Chinese, please. My kids both speak pretty good Chinese. And then they called another person to come over, and they were really angry because these people were all pushing to, you know, everybody wants to get on the train before the train leaves. And all of a sudden, their faces changed. I don't know what happened. Their faces just completely changed. And they took our bags and walked us through two checkpoints to the train, asked us for no money, thanked us for being in China, and told us to come back. And I knew, you know, when we got on the train, I looked at my daughter and I said, you know, it was like angels took over. It was like angels took over. They carried our bags. That never happens. They carried our bags, went through two checkpoints, didn't have to stop because the guards were with us. I mean, they escorted us. They not only didn't ask for money, they escorted us. It was God. You see what I mean about an exciting life? And you see what I mean about being in the, in the thick of it and not seeing beyond your nose, but your steps are being directed of the Lord? Before I tell you a little bit about Russia, let me just tell you one more testimony. These last two years in China, 1990 to 1992, my son had a mountain bike. And this is a great mountain bike. And uh, bicycle theft is a big problem in China. And people lose two or three bicycles a year. So you're always trying to get the ugliest, oldest bike, so nobody will take it. But they're still stolen. They're painted and sold in other towns. So when you have a bicycle stolen, you kiss it goodbye, you're never going to see it again. And my son had a nice mountain bike because he was working at, he he did some translation work for a bike shop. And they let him have this mountain bike, which are very hard to get in in this city, for a very low price. And I told my son, don't leave your bike downstairs. Always bring it upstairs into the apartment. We lived in a Chinese building, and just don't leave it downstairs. You know, the Juan Jalo, the foreigners' quarters, they have gates, there's security. We didn't have that. So he left it downstairs. <laughs> and he went down, and the bike was gone. And he came back up fuming. They stole my bike. And I didn't say, I told you so. I didn't say that. I couldn't, you know, help, zipped up my mouth. And uh, I said, well, use your skateboard. Go to school with your skateboard. Oh, he was so angry. He was just so angry that they 
his good mountain bike. And it wasn't a matter of find, just finding money for a mountain bike. It was finding another mountain bike, period. When he left, and of course he slammed the door, I took my daughter's hand and I said, let's agree. Let's agree in prayer. We need a bike for John. We don't want to hear his complaints. <laughs> so we, we held hands and we prayed. Well, I prayed. You know, she agreed with me and I prayed. <laughs> and... Um, the Lord didn't answer when I wanted him to. I wanted the bike back that week, you know, that week, but it didn't happen. A month later, we got a telephone call. And my daughter spoke in Chinese. And I said, who was that? She said, it was the bike shop. And my daughter's really matter of fact. You know, I, I have to tell you, my daughter is very matter of fact. I'm going to sidetrack here for a minute. This afternoon, <laughs> this afternoon, I took a wrong turn. I was going to Gardena, and I made a left-hand turn going to Manhattan Beach. And I said, now, why am I doing this? I'm so disoriented. What's wrong with me? You know, I know I have to turn right. I turned left. Why am I here? And, of course, I don't want to tell you what my daughter said about my mental abilities. But just as we were sitting there waiting for the left-hand turn signal, this is just a few hours ago, the car next to us where we would have been got hit by a car. And we were sitting there, and bang, and it went, oh, Boy, I'm glad we weren't there. Signal changed. We turned. My daughter says, that was the Lord. Made us change our place. See, she's very matter of fact. Takes miracles for granted. So my daughter tells me, that was the bike shop. Oh, well, what did they want? They had John's bike. They had John's bike? Tell me. What did they say? Well, apparently the thief had come into the, into the bike shop looking for parts for that bike. That particular bike shop of all the bike shops in town. And these people recognized the bike and said, show us proof of purchase. And the man fled. And they were calling my son to go get his bike. (laughs) That never, never happens. That was the Lord. And when I told that to my Chinese classes, they were, I mean, people believed. That negative thing that I remember that day when he slammed the door and he was fuming, that negative thing was turned into a positive for his glory the growth of our faith, and the good of the people around us. The Lord is faithful. My time is almost gone, but I want to tell you a little bit about Russia. I went to teach at a place called the Nuclear, the Institute for Nuclear Research, Joint Institute for Nuclear Research. Great place. Very intellectual people, and I felt terribly inadequate. I barely passed geometry. I said, if these people find out how stupid I am, I won't be able to teach here. But the Lord wants the glory, you know. He's not looking for you to be perfect or exceptionally skilled. He wants willing hearts and willing hands. And the Lord gave me incredible grace with these people. Now, these are people with two PhDs, physicists. They've written in international journals. They give seminars in Italy and Paris. And they're 100% atheistic. There was one man in all my classes, and I had 70 people, who was a member of the Russian Orthodox Church, and he thought that was the only true church on the earth. And people made fun of him. Nobody else believed in God. And they thought, I believe in God because I was a silly woman. You know, you're a female. You're emotional. You believe in God. Do you know that, just like China, it reminded me of China, even though Russia is open now and you can speak about the Lord, I went as an English teacher and I couldn't openly do it. Still, the Lord opened up opportunities for me to speak about him. Slowly but surely, these people started talking about God. It became part of our conversation. And I remember one physicist came over to me one evening and he said, you know, Mary, nobody's ever mentioned the name of God in this building before. In this building. I was the first American teacher hired in that institute. First foreign teacher hired at that institute. That's something the Lord did. I didn't know I was going to be the first one. I didn't know that I could be an in- instrumental in bringing more Christian teachers to that place full of atheists. This is something the Lord did. And I know the seed is being sown. And I expect somebody else is going to water and harvest. I don't know who. Maybe somebody from here. But the seed is being sown. And I want to just read two cards that I got at Christmas time. This is from Anatoly, one of the physicists. He says, Dear Mary, I had a question. What is Christmas? Is it important for people? Now I know. 
It is important. It is really day of love. Thank you for this knowledge. They found out about the love of God sending Jesus Christ. And this one from Valerie, who finds it hard to believe. He's got three kids, twin sons, is having a terrible time trying to make ends meet. And he writes on the back, Thanks to the God, for he leads you in our country. Merry Christmas. The seed is being sown. And I just want to leave this with you. Your steps are being directed of the Lord. Don't ever doubt it. And don't be afraid to give up the dearest thing in your life. If I have to give up my house, my family, everything for the Lord, I wouldn't change anything. The Lord will always be first. There's nothing like living for the Lord 100%. Your life is is 100% better than when you try and hold on to things. Pray for Russia. Pray for China. Pray that even if they don't get material goods, even if capitalism doesn't get established, faith in God will. These people have lost all their ideology, 70 years of a failed experiment. Communism didn't work. They know it. And they have nothing to hold on to now. This is life. You know, Russians don't like to talk about death. Death is too terminal. There's nothing after death for them. They, every time we talk about death, it's like they react. There's nothing after death for them. They need something to hold on to. They need God. Pray for Russia and pray for China. God bless you. Sacrifice and denying ourselves, and amazing what God can do when we do that. Jesus is our example. He had everything, and yet he set aside his glory to clothe himself in human flesh, become one of us, and lose his life for our sake that we might have life. That's what it's all about. We're going to share communion right now. And I would ask the communion ushers if you would prepare to distribute communion to the congregation. There's some need for a reordering of priorities in our lives. And that has to be done on a fairly consistent basis because things can get out of whack. We can lose sight of the most important things as we're caught up in the day-to-day routine and the, and the emergencies and the urgencies of that day-to-day routine. Sometimes we do lose sight of the fact that, that God is ordering our steps and we find ourselves in a time of panic We lose faith. And it's a moment like this as we just sit quietly, as we reflect on that which we've heard, Mary's own short testimony about just some of her experiences, how God has gone before her and literally changed her life dramatically and shown her the really important things. And we who are left behind, we are here, still here, cursed with the abundance of this land. Sometimes our priorities can get out of order. It's vital that we remember to deny ourselves. Not in a morbid sense, not in a punishing sense, but in a disciplined sense in which we say, what is really important? What's going to last for eternity? Where do I need to really put my energies and my resources? What are the most important things? Jesus said, follow me. 
But in order to follow me, you must deny yourself. And it's going to be some cost to follow me. It's going to require sacrifice. We don't follow him at our leisure. We don't follow him at our convenience. He says, you pick up your cross. Follow me. You'll find life. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we lapse back into our selfishness and our foolishness and our pettiness, our rebelliousness and our unforgiveness. Forgive us, Lord, for our insensitivity to your spirit, which keeps prompting us and calling us. I thank you for Mary, and I thank you for her influence in my life and for the testimony that her life has been to me personally. I thank you that as I would read her letters, that I would be reminded once again what the important things are. Lord, not many of us will go to a foreign land to preach the gospel or to reach out to people. But every one of us have people around us. You've called us just to live our lives as witnesses to. We may not see those people come to you, Lord. But we'll be faithful with that which you've entrusted to us now. Lord, as we take these elements, as we take this bread and this juice, we look to you to renew us and strengthen us as we recommit our our way to you. We are nothing without you. You are the source of our life and our strength. You're the source of everything good and true. And we acknowledge you and we give you thanks tonight. Revive us again, O Lord. Revive us again for your sake, for your will, and for your kingdom. Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. shared the cup with his disciples. He spoke of it as being the cup of the new covenant in his blood, which would be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We have forgiveness. We have forgiveness. There's healing through the blood of Jesus. Substantial healing and total healing. There's release. There's peace. There's freedom through the blood of Jesus. All remains is for us to believe. All remains for us to receive that which he has for us, for his sake. Not just for our own sake, but for his sake. Lord Jesus, we worship you. And we drink this cup, thankfully, Worshipfully. To Jesus. Amen. 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 You pass these cups to the aisles. The ushers will come and collect them. We're going to close the service with one more song. I invite you to stand, please. We are joined by your love, we're baptized into one body, help us see.